You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. I, you know, stepped very gingerly into the room and I asked them, you know, when was the last time you actually spoke to a teenager who wasn't serving you fast food? I said it in a very polite way, but you can probably imagine it didn't go down very well initially. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and that was Anika Simon, my guest on today's show. And she was sharing one example of how she's made this career out of trying to be a reality check and bring some user-centeredness to the world of advertising agencies and startups and corporate innovation teams. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you can cast your mind all the way back to episode eight, you might remember the conversation that I had with Ramona Liberoff. At the time, she was the CEO of the Spring Accelerator, this organization which was using a mix of human-centered design skills and state aid funding to support breakthrough innovations in developing markets. And Ramona was leading their drive to help foster developments that could transform the lives of teenage girls. Well, if we flash forward a couple of years, and the other day I was catching up with Ramona, who's now working on some new initiatives for the German energy company, Energy, and she suggested that I have a chat with Anika all about her career story and some of the things that she's learned along the way about how to keep big agencies grounded in the reality of users' lives. And it turned out to be a pretty fascinating chat. And I'm going to tell you a bit more about Anika's background before we get started with the interview. But while we're on the subject of career journeys, I'm wondering how many of you out there listening to this are thinking about your next move this summer and might have been checking out our MEX jobs board. So this is where companies who share the MEX community's values of user-centered design can post roles, and we highlight them for 30 days across this podcast and our social feeds in the email newsletter. And there's a bunch of great roles uh, out there at the moment. So CX Partners, founded by Giles Colborn. Uh, many of you remember him, I think, from some of the really quite impressively detailed and expertly delivered presentations that he's given at our MEX conferences over the years. Uh, CX is looking for a user experience consultant specifically to be part of the financial services pod based out of London. It's quite an interesting approach from CX. You know, they've organized their practice into these specific areas of vertical expertise. So you can find all the details about that one and who you need to contact to apply for it on the jobs board, which is at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. Uh, there's others too. There's a director of user experience research role in Seattle for Getty Images, uh, head of user experience for Ovo Energy in either London or, or Bristol. So if you're actively looking or you just want to get a feel for what's out there, head over to the board at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. Uh, and of course, if you're hiring, you can post your own roles. Uh, it's £139 plus VAT for a 30-day listing and you can get it all set up online. Okay, so back to the interview with Onika. I mean, I'm going to let the conversation itself tell the full story of her career, but I went into it wondering, you know, how does a journey that begins with a degree in philosophy and a chance conversation with a librarian, it turns out, lead to this surprise move that she had from Manchester to New York and then on into one of the advertising industry's foremost fellowship programs uh, and a career-long interest in really understanding customer behavior. Along the way, there have been awards. Uh, she's been working with the likes of Cisco. Uh, and now there's a new direction where she's trying to make the most of everything she's learned along the way doing that. I'll be back at the end with another couple of updates for you on what's coming up in the MEX community over the next few months. But in the meantime, here's me and Anika Simon. Hope you enjoy. Anika, welcome to the podcast. 
thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. So can we talk a little bit about beginnings? It seems the appropriate thing to do at the start of a podcast. Now, you studied philosophy and literature, and then quite quickly afterwards, found yourself working in the world of of agencies. Mm. And I'm curious as to how much of that was planned versus serendipitous? I mean, was that what you were thinking about as you went through your university course? Absolutely not. I would be, uh, I would have probably uh, several thousand philosophy graduates call foul if I, uh, if I said I had any idea what it was going to lead to. Philosophy is, is, it's one of those, it's one of those subjects that's really fun to learn, but there really isn't a vocational direction, um, not in the way it's taught. And, um, you know, and specifically in my case, the 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 year was oh let's see the year was 98 when i started um 97 actually when i started it was the year that our former prime minister tony blair actually removed free higher education i don't know if anybody uh i don't know if you remember that but um but i do indeed yes literally that year and um i so there were no more grants there were no more grants grants were replaced with loans and there was deep deep panic across the country, but specifically for working class kids like myself, I I think I had a letter saying that I was entitled to the grant and then that was invalidated and it was replaced with a loan. As a result, the three years that I spent studying were, you know, basically juggling subjects with um, numerous part-time jobs. You know, I, I was in Manchester and I, I worked in a call centre, I worked for The Gap, I worked, you know, I, I worked around the clock and philosophy was, again, one of those courses that was super easy. I think I had five contact hours for the year, for the for the week um, and juggled um, all these jobs around. Um, and then when it came time for me to graduate, I, I had wanted to study a master's uh, and eventually, you know, I, I, I had wanted to be pretty much um, a student for life, but um Obviously, that wasn't practical. I had a kind of small round table in my kitchen with my three best friends and asked them what I should do. You know, what kind of a job do they did they think I could do? And were your um, housemates also on the philosophy course with you? No, actually, you, met, you said the word serendipitous and all of this was serendipitous. So um, weirdly, I ended up on the um, business and management campus, which is called UMIST uh, in Manchester. So I was actually living with a group of Austrian guys who were studying international business uh, in order to avoid military service. And um, they're great really great guys. And, um, you know, they, they actually found my, my syllabus and my approach to studying amusing. So we all got together in the kitchen and they really helpfully, uh, pointed out when I asked them, you know, what, what should I think about doing to earn money after I graduate? They, they pointed out that I tended to have very strong opinions about communications, whether it was ads on the telly or, um, you know, packaging in the supermarkets um, you know, any leaflets that came through the door, I always had an opinion. It's something I hadn't actually noticed before. Interesting. So the hook was there from an early yeah, stage, perhaps. Yeah, they, they, they noticed. They noticed that I would always gripe about, you know, certain, you know, brands, any any brands attempt to communicate that kind of fell short of the mark. I would, I would you know, casually point, point it out and sometimes even, you know, sometimes even boycott or, or, you know, change how we did things as a household as a result. So they said, you know, you should look into that. You know, I'm definitely going to date myself considerably, but um, I had no idea how to look into that. I actually went to the library and asked the librarian, how do I look for a job? And, um, you know, long story short, three hours later, um, I had my first ever email address and I had been kind of pointed to a website called thegraduateonline.com or .co.uk. On the landing page, there was a section on advertising which I clicked on and there were six jobs for undergraduates in advertising and I applied to all six and within a month three of them had replied and one of them was WPP. So I guess flash forward a little while and you find yourself uh, in New York working for WPP group? That's right. So I got onto the WPP Marketing Fellowship which at the time 
um, I think was still only for undergrads. I know that they run several schemes at the moment, one for MBAs, um, you know, basically people in at different points of their career. But at the time it was undergrads only. And I ended up, I, I had always wanted to move to New York. So I ended up starting um, at J. Walter Thompson, which is, um, you know, a fairly large advertising agency in the WPP group uh, in New York. And it literally was a dream come true. I was 21 years old and I somehow managed to to move to my favorite city in the world with all expenses paid by my employer. So it, it literally felt like a dream. What do you think they saw? Because you're coming from philosophy. And as you say, you know, you were asking the librarian about how to find a, a job, not specifically a job like this. And you didn't necessarily have the drive to go to advertising directly. And yet, you know, there you are in, uh, I guess, a pretty flagship program for the company. So they, they must have seen something there. I mean, when you look back now with the benefit of hindsight, and if you can, you know, take the excuse from me not to be modest about it, what do you what yeah. do you think it was they, they spotted? It's funny, because I, I, I do have an answer, but I will, I will caveat my answer in 18 years of hindsight. Uh, literally, because at the time, I, I honestly did not know. Uh, six, six or seven people were, were chosen that year to, to join the WPP Marketing Fellowship. And I'd been told that there were over 2000 applications. So I, I, you know, I knew that it was something special. But I, it took a very long time and it took many, many years of, you know, basically throwing myself into lots of different, you know, project situations and, and pitch situations and, you know, all sorts of different kinds of missions before I began to understand, you know, what the common denominator was um, with, with me, from me. I'll go back with hindsight, though, to the final round of the, the fellowship assessment process uh, and it was, again, rather special. It was 24 finalists were invited to um, basically a mansion, a mansion in Mayfair that's owned by WPP. And it's called Hayes Views. And there are, you know, a number of, of boardrooms in that building. And we were divided into four teams of six people. And we were given a campaign. We were given a, a brief for, to come up with a campaign for a existing client of um, WPP. And uh, we were given an entire day to come up with the campaign. And we were um, we were assessed continuously by various people. I had no idea at the time who they were, but it turns out that they were basically, um, you know, heads of strategy and a few CEOs from operating companies in the WPP group, um, even a few like people from the board of directors. So very, very important people are kind of shuffling into our boardrooms and observing us and making notes about us individually uh, while we um, collaborate on these campaigns. And I'll be, I'll be very honest, I didn't do much throughout the day because I was extremely intimidated and, and nervous. And the five other people in my group were incredibly vocal about how special they were. So the, the campaign was for a mobile phone company. And I was sat around the table with um, a guy from Japan who knew everything there was to know about mobile phones, a girl whose dad was, you know, managing director at Vodafone, you know, somebody else who, you know, had, a, a, you know, very, very strong opinions about kind of where um, personal communications were going. You know, I was I was basically just being kind of overwhelmed with everybody else rabbiting on about about everything they knew. And so we had to give a presentation at 5 p.m. and it got to I think about 3:30 uh, when I I finally just began to panic and I stood up and I grabbed the uh, markers and approached the flip chart board at the end of the room and said, guys, we don't have a presentation. We have lots of information and we have, you know, a couple of good ideas, but we don't have a presentation. And so, you know, I basically got incredibly bossy for one hour and forced everybody to compose a presentation and to rehearse their parts of the presentation. And that was my contribution to the day. Uh, I'll also say that, you know, another reason why I wasn't very vocal during the day is because I already had a job offer. Uh, and I didn't know that the WPP Marketing Fellowship was for a job in three different companies. I thought the WPP was was one ad agency. So I, you know, I had, had a bit of a kind of insulation from the the panic that everybody else was experiencing because I already had a job offer but I hustled everybody you know to to the finish uh, and then we went downstairs and had had fun presenting and I was genuinely shocked when I was offered 
a place. So I take it the presentation went down reasonably well. Oh yeah, it was it was funny, you know, because because you know everybody was really you know another thing that that I very much did was just puncture the you know puncture this like suffocating panic that that everybody began to to really struggle with because I don't I mean I, I operate quite well in in crises but I you know I, I I have a mantra it's kind of turned into a mantra over the years that you know whether if you've got something to do you can do it stressed or you can do it chilled but it takes the same amount of time so you know so chill out interesting and uh so that that kind of helped everybody as well. We ended up having a lot of fun with our presentation. It was um, it was it was funny. It was funny, and we had fun. I mean, that maybe was an early example of something which, from conversations you and I have had before we, we started recording this show, seems mm-hmm. like has continued throughout your career. That ability to synthesize and focus in when it comes to actually delivering something in terminology that your audience is going to understand and connect yes. them to the issue at hand, whether that be yeah, the, the mobile phone business in the late 90s or whether that is um, you know, something that you're working on in the, the present day. And mm. I mean, is that something that has always been with you or were there other things you know, throughout your career which you think have helped you to hone that skill of being able to connect people to what the real underlying issue is that they need to focus on? I think it's a bit of both. I think that, you know, I, I often say to, you know, anyone who'll listen that, that I, I feel like one of the luckiest people in the world because my, my job and my vocation, you know, which I've, you know, which I haven't really uh, swerved from in 18 years, it, it enables me to be myself you know, my, my personality is very much about, you know, finding the fastest way to solve a problem. You know, I've, I've always been like that. I'm the eldest of, of many kids. Um, and I grew up taking care of, of younger siblings and solving, you know, domestic and academic and logistical issues constantly, you know, in parallel. So that's part of, you know, that's part of who I am. And it's part part of where I come from. But the 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 alternate is true. You know, I've I've through being on the WPP marketing fellowship, and then deliberately challenging myself at key points, you know, in history and my career to, to change directions or to try to apply how I think to completely different contexts. I've set various pressure tests for myself to see if, you know, to basically see if it's real, to see if this, you know, ability, this, you know, some people call it, you know, a talent or a gift to see if it's actually real or to see if I've been lucky. That ability to, you know, I guess, synthesize different parts of the problem and then communicate them to, to people so that you can get a variety of different people, you know, working together to, to solve it. You know, it's one of the things which I think comes up time and again when I talk to people on this podcast um, yes. about, you know, it being a, a core underlying skill, even if it's not something which is their primary job description, it's something which seems to apply to, to so many different roles. I mean, in the course of what you've done over the years and obviously you've been in the the advertising agency world now you're running your own um, freelance business as well Mm -hmm. you've seen this at work in large companies in small startups are there any particular hallmarks that you've come to look for when you think a team is going to have the ability to collaborate across different disciplines and get all of those different viewpoints together and yet still keep a focus on on what the underlying issue whether it's a customer need or it's a business need or a combination of those things is going to be you know what what are the things that you've come to notice make teams good at doing that it's a great question the first thing that leapt to mind is uh, is ego <laughs> and it's it's probably been said quite a few times but you know the the absence of ego is the is the key factor i think to 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 collaboration and i you know I'll, I'll qualify what i mean by that because i i believe i also believe that you need a healthy ego you know in order to collaborate you need a you need a healthy strong sense of self-worth and and self-purpose to come to the table and um basically you know shut up and listen you know to be to be frank so it's you know ego is is the is the running theme but i think that at different points 
you need to you need to have a healthy ego. You need to have a healthy uh, sense of of who you are and why you've been chosen to be on the team. Um, and then throughout the process of collaboration, if you have a healthy ego, then it enables you to be quiet and to actually listen and seek to understand and you know receive information that doesn't always make sense at first listen or at first glance. And so that's that's what that would be the most important factor from from you know in my opinion another very important uh, factor to kind of interdisciplinary collaboration is you know it might sound like silly and, and and obvious but complete clarity on the goal you know on, on the one hand uh, we all understand that that there are many ways to express a concept or an aim or an objective or a goal, you know, it looks different. It sounds different. It needs to do different things for different audiences. But when you, when you have to collaborate with other experts, you know, and, and everybody is, you know, moving hopefully in, in parallel towards the same destination, it, it helps to be able to articulate when, when you're, when it's done you know, when, when everybody's done a good job and, and, uh, and you can deliver. And so I find, I find myself being responsible for, for, for that usually at the beginning of a project. What have you learned about doing that from different cultures? Because you, you spent the time in New York, you studied in the UK, now you work in Berlin. It sounds like it's yes. been a pretty international <laughs> flavor to it. Are, are there yeah. any particular experiences that you think back to that were really uh, formative in showing uh, you how to do that across different cultures? Many, 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 many. And you know, and another thing I say often is I, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> I've learned the hard way. I've learned by messing up. Um, and, you know, I, I reassure um, students, I reassure clients, I reassure, you know, my friends all the time that sometimes the most effective way to learn something is to is the painful way, and, you know, to, to absolutely cock something up and, and feel horrible about it. You know, it kind of leaves an indelible print on the brain and, you know, not to not to, you know, not to stumble into that territory again. So I've got loads of stories of um, kind of lost in translation moments. Uh, on on projects in teams you know uh, for pitches you know I've got loads of um, you know painful uh, self-deprecating anecdotes but um, I think that the my specific footprint of of experience in the UK and the US and now in Germany has been helpful mainly because everybody has well each each of those um, each of those countries has a very kind of specific uh, style uh, a, prof- uh, a style of professionalism uh, to be to be more specific um, and the fact that I was 21 when I moved to America and effectively became a professional in in New York. It's stood me in good stead for working quickly. I think the probably the nicest way to to say it is to be, you know, it's taught me how to um, how to get the best of my my teammates uh, or my you know my partners in various situations um, because it's a very very demanding environment. It's demanding. It's competitive. It's relentless. And the dark side of that is it can be you know it can be brutal and it can be you know insensitive, but Thankfully, um, I've I've worked in so many different cultural situations that that's been balanced out with you know more you know more humane and more fun loving uh, approach uh, to to getting the work done and to getting everything everything as perfect as it can be uh, without without bruising too many um, you know without bruising too many egos and and you know without developing a reputation so that people wouldn't want to work with me again. So I mean. Let's get into some of the the work because I think that would give an interesting context yeah. to the, the conversation. I mean, when you think back to being 21 in New York and starting out in the world of advertising and the kind of things that you were working on there, particularly, I guess, that the sort of rising influence of digital at the time. And as you were saying mm-hmm. earlier, you know, this was a time when you were only just getting on the web for the first time yourself, yep. getting your first email address. And then when you think about the kind of work that you're doing now, where from what I've seen of the things that you've done, digital is pervasive in the way yes. you go about designing and, and strategizing. I mean, what are some of the differences that you've you've noticed uh, over mm-hmm. the years as that's evolved for you? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the, the biggest difference is um, when I started out as a junior planner in an ad agency, my job was to go out. My job was research. My job was to go out and actually listen to consumers and find out what the right 
language and the right pitch and the right tone of voice would be for, you know, for a future campaign for whoever. My first clients were De Beers, Pfizer, who else? Yeah, De Beers and Pfizer, basically, for the first year. And um, very, very different clients. Yeah, I guess that's the beauty of starting in an agency is you get that that diversity, you know, from diamonds to uh, to drugs. Yeah, that's uh, diamonds, pretty... yeah exactly, exactly that. So uh, so it was, you know, it was, it was very interesting because the, you know, the aim of the game was to, you know, was to find these very different kinds of people and um, to, to interview them. So I, I spent very, very little time at my desk. And so what's really interesting is as the years rolled by, people became more and more interested into uh, the internet and all the various digital platforms that popped up between 2001 uh, and now. And so strategists and then increasingly creatives would spend more and more and more time at their desks with their headphones on. And what ended up happening was my my last uh, full-time job in an agency that I had, I I actually championed a, a huge push for the opposite. Uh, and I was extremely vocal, extremely vociferous about about making people get up and leave their desk and go outside. Because, you know, you, fair enough, there's an infinite amount of information on the web. But I feel that this particular agency and, you know, what's, ha- what's happening in that agency, I think, is symptomatic, perhaps, of the industry on the whole. Desk research is is becoming, you know, the de facto thing. And whenever you're given uh, an assignment that has knowledge gaps in it, the the assumption is that you can only uh, you can only work with the resources with that you have within an office, which I think is is it's just limiting. It's limiting. It's bunk. So I've spent in the last, you know, in the last decade of, of my career, I've spent most of my time literally pushing people out of the door and challenging any assumptions that answers can be found on the internet as opposed to you know from from the mouths of babes outside the office yeah i mean here here uh, it's it gets to the heart really i think of what so many people in our our mex community you know feel is so central to to their roles just that Mm. that process of shortening the distance between the practitioners who are tasked with creating something and those who they're creating it for and you know of course there are all kinds of different methods and approaches and different job titles which can be associated with with doing that but Mm -hmm. at its heart it's that underlying process of how do you how do you close that gap but when you think back to the, the work that you've done over the years are there particular times where you feel that um, that's had a, a really transformative effect on a project that you are working on, you know, when you've been able to make that case uh, yes. and actually get people on board with it. When do you feel it's, it's had the greatest impact for you over the years? I will have to tell you a story that I think I've told you before. It's, I think the 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 most uh, the clearest illustration uh, of that of that thinking in action was uh, again in the last job that I had in London for a retail design company. We were given the opportunity to pitch to you know one of the biggest uh, sportswear brands in the world just in time for the Olympics where they were the sponsor. So it was a big pitch, huge opportunity. I wasn't invited to be on the pitch team, and I was a little bit sad about that. But I, um, I observed the, the leaders, the head of strategy, uh, head of client management, um, the executive creative director, and I think the MD was there. I observed them all having lunch, um, having a working lunch and trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to approach the pitch and how to pick uh, the team. And I, I had already in quite a short space of time developed a reputation for being a bit of a troublemaker uh, for them in particular, for the leaders, because I would constantly challenge the status quo and challenge their their style of of um, of guidance and and uh, and leadership, you know, in a, in a teasing way, um, but you know, with with the aim of actually changing the way things were done. You know, and the, the funny thing is, I was hired to do that. The head of strategy actually told me he wanted to do that in the interview, and I said, "Great, you know, I'll, I'll happily I'll happily have a go as long as you have my back." And he, you know, it was a kind of it wasn't even unspoken. It was it was said often that, that that was my that was my role. So I overhear you know this group of of five guys in their mid forties having a think about you know how to put this pitch together, and a key strategic component of the pitch was um, targeting fourteen to nineteen year olds. So you know they're they're you know talking about teen stuff. They're talking about cool stuff, and I just got this overwhelming feeling of dread like my my blood ran cold I was like oh crap we're gonna lose we are not gonna win this pitch 
um, you know, based on, on, you know, the direction that they seem to be taking with this, um, you know, which was they were just going to kind of go to Shoreditch and pay a couple of uh, boutique trend agencies for some weighty reports um, and just kind of crib, crib a few factoids from that and, and see if it, see if it would work. So I, you know, stepped very gingerly into the room and I asked them, you know, when was the last time you actually spoke to a teenager who wasn't serving you fast food? I said it in a very polite way, but you can probably imagine it didn't go down very well initially. Uh, their, their children were about mm, between the ages of, you know, zero and eight. So, they honestly couldn't tell me the last time they'd spoken directly to a teen. And so, you know, they then kind of put the ball back in my court and said, well, what do you, what would you do? You know, I, had, I didn't have a plan, uh, but I was lucky because um, I am the eldest of seven. And at the time I would have been 28, 29. So my youngest sibling was actually 14 and he was at school not very far away from where we were we were in Paddington and he was at school in Acton so for those who know London um they know that's not very far away and uh and I managed to persuade him to actually invite like 30 of his mates to Westfield shopping center for an afternoon and we gave each kid 20 pounds and we brought video cameras but more importantly we asked for their permission um, to see some of the content from their phones and their cameras. And we spent six hours with 14 and 15 year olds in Westfield. And the the insights that we got from that afternoon, um, it was me and it was um, a 2D designer and a 3D designer. Because uh, I also thought it would be really interesting for the three of us to basically compare notes on, on what we heard and what we saw, given our disciplines were so different. And we put together a very, very, a very, very, let's say, unconventional and unorthodox pitch. But we went in and the, the result was, uh, that was, that was 2011. So the result to date has been seven years of, of stellar work for this client. It grew to an account that, that was worth millions. Um, and so that was a really, really uh, satisfying uh, achievement at the time. When do you think the scales fell from the eyes of those you know, middle-aged guys who were trying to understand teens? You know, was there a, a particular learning that came from it, a particular part of the, the exposure to the reality of people's lives where you felt that, you know, that was the moment they clicked and, and got it or was it more of a, a gradual sort of a process no no there was it was it was instant I mean obviously there was just enough trust you know I was teasing them I was challenging them and I was you know I was I was doing it in a relatively safe way because I my my aim you know the my aim um which I you know I sometimes have to explain up front is you know they they were initially you know quite Con confrontational and they or accusing me of being confrontational and I said listen you know take take a tiny dose of humiliation right now because I'm saving you from a much greater humiliation in front of a client um you know I'm on your team so you know that gave me enough permission and enough you know cash to actually um make make the insights afternoon happen and as soon as I got back you know, I already knew what I wanted to show them because we had content from their phones. We actually had their photos, their videos of them explaining which stores they love and why, which stores they hate and why, which displays, which experiences, which brands, which colors. Like they were like, this is our life. And they, they spent a lot of time in that specific shopping center. So they also were able to show us, you know, things that they were familiar to them. And as soon as I was able to, to show them how much content I'd gotten for relatively like no money, like they gave me, I think, 750 pounds and to get the kind of content that I came back with uh, if you went to a conventional marketing research company and briefed briefed it in uh, first of all it would have taken you know six to eight weeks and second of all it would have taken more like 75 grand so they instantly understood albeit in very rational terms the value of what we'd done so you used an interesting word earlier where I think you described that kind of role as being a troublemaker of some yeah. kind which you know, when you reflect on what that that means for agency culture as a whole and the sense that you know, the ability to rapidly get insights into the lives of the very people you're trying to serve at low mm -hmm. cost is seen still as a form of troublemaking in some agencies. 
does that say something about where agency culture was then? And do you think that now, you know, this was 2011, you say we're now seven years later. Yeah. Do you think that much has changed? I think that I think that things are constantly changing and things are constantly shifting like icebergs and tectonic plates do, um, even if it's slow and even if you can't see it, things are shifting and changing. You know, I think one of the things that I, I hear a lot from people who know the trajectory of my career is that, you know, I should have stayed. I should have stayed. You know, I hear that all the time. I, I actually quit the day after they... Um, the day after they promoted me to director. So when you uh, say was, stayed, you mean stayed in, in the stayed agency? Stayed in the agency, yeah, stayed yeah. in the agency. Because um, a lot of the stuff that I was vocal about and advocating for, you know, has become, you know, I'm happy to say, it's become has become the norm, at least amongst creative agencies. You know, and I, I, I always chuckle when I go on LinkedIn and I see like another thought piece or medium article or, you know, something or other that, you know, who where the core tenet is something that I was, you know, preaching about and pushing for and being very, very um, disruptive, deliberately disruptive about, you know, years and years ago. Um, but, you know, I, cho- I chose to do what was right for me at the time. And uh, the wonderful thing about my position today is I often collaborate with agency teams. So I'm, I'm often brought in for pitch situations or for special projects that have, you know, very, very narrow uh, windows of time or subject matters to tackle. So I feel like I get the best the best of both worlds now. And I would I would absolutely say that at least in the way that agencies communicate their tools and their processes, they 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 understand you know that it's not about knowing everything. It's about being willing to pursue anything um, to solve the problem. When you did your piece of work relatively recently with uh, Cisco, um, mm. was that one of the things which you think motivated you know, a company of that that sort of scale to want to bring in someone with your skill set that was a very that was a very specific experience to be honest and and it was less about the company and it was more about um, a very very wonderful individual who wanted to to make changes who wanted to make cultural uh, and operational changes in this huge company. And um, she and I met uh, under serendipitous circumstances, which is always the best way. I think it was um, it was a collaboration between uh, the two of us, or actually the three of us, because um, she, she had a team of two at the time. And it was, how do I put this? Uh, it was a, a very, very specific m- mix of our skills. So, you know, she saw in me, for want of a better word, a kind of mercenary person, a mercenary strategist that just gets stuff done. But because she was very much part of the the ecosystem and, um, you know, specifically the political ecosystem uh, in this enormous uh, tech giant, this big corporate tech giant of a company, um, you know, there were certain things that I was able to to realize and to get done that um, that she wasn't able to. So, you know, we kind of made a we made a pact to you know establish uh, a new strategic business unit um, with some you know constructive disruption as part of its function but the way we went about it was um, it had never been done before you know I can't really get into details but like one of the things I had to do was actually badge up and become a Cisco employee for almost two years just so that I could get the permissions and the access required to move quickly. So was this the the first time that you had actually worked you know officially on the books as it were for a a large corporation as opposed to uh, being within agency world yes it was absolutely the it was the first and only uh time that i had ever made this kind of commitment this profound a commitment to to one company one client, um, one team for a very long period of time. Like I said, it was almost two years on it. But it it really was, you know, it was a, a, a meaty challenge. You know, we can kind of, we can talk more about, you know, the kind of, of challenges that I'm attracted to. But it was, you know, verging on the impossible. I was very much attracted to the idea of, you know, going into the depths of a giant tech corporation and basically manipulating its DNA from the inside out and leaving something that that belonged to it leaving a new strategic business unit this was known as cisco hyper innovation living labs right that's right chill for short <laughs> and you went on to win an award for for this work um and i'm 
curious to know, you know, what you think they were recognizing with that award. You know, how, how significant an impact do you think it had on the business? What were the things that for you, when you look back at that two years, um, mm. you, you were really proud of achieving with that? Um, well, it's, you know, it's still having an impact. I, I, I have to say it's, its success has actually become more visible since I, since I stepped away. And the, the point at which I, I did step away was extremely poignant. You know, I had very, uh, emotional conversations with everybody involved because I was very clear, I was very disciplined and very clear uh, about what I'd been hired to do. The, the project, uh, well, for me, it was a project, but the, the, the business unit won an Edison Award uh, for innovation, for corporate innovation, um, because it, it represents, it still represents something that's never, never been done before, which is the ability to coordinate uh, groups of other giant corporations to solve uh, what they call Horizon Three innovation challenges, and Horizon Three means stuff that stuff that sounds like sci-fi today. So, in theory, you know, they're 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 pulling all these companies together, they're finding the the blueprints for these solutions, and they're actually creating new businesses, new startups designed by these groups of giant businesses uh, to solve very specific problems. So I think, you know, when, when we won the Edison Award, it was because we've managed to put together two proof of concepts. And so, you know, the, the, the scale of the opportunity, the magnitude of the opportunity was, was actually becoming visible, you know, to Cisco and to the broader business community. But I chose uh, to step away at that point because I'd been, I'd been hired to figure out the how. And once that was done, you know, it took, took two years, uh, which I actually think was quick. But once that was done, I, and I realized that they were actually going to be very successful with it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to basically continue and, and re- repeat the formula and, and repeat the, the proof of concept process. So, um, you know, again, it was one of those, those situations where most people would have kind of stuck around and, and kind of enjoyed it for a bit longer. But I had to be very honest with myself about the reality of working for a client that's eight hours away from a time zone perspective. It was very tough. And, you know, secondly, my expertise is, is figuring out the how. Uh, and once I figured out the how, you know, I feel like I, I tend to kind of I get less excited. I realize that the job is done. I mean, what came next and, and which of these skills that you developed over the course of, of the career so far, you know, around mm. being able to, to listen and human centered design skills and that ability to cut through noise, you know, which of those have you now taken on to what you're doing day to day currently? And I mean, I guess in particular, I'm interested in whether or not you still see them fundamentally as being about having a some kind of disruptive or as you say troublemaking kind of kind of role in what you do now so what I do primarily now is I actually coach other people there's two reasons for that first of all I spent I've spent most of my career kind of trying to find new contexts new occasions new you know new environments to to apply for want of a better word like the same the same skills the same you know the same stuff. So after 16, 17 years, I have to be honest, you know, it felt a little bit repetitive. It felt a little bit, and this is actually the, the, the phase of, of one's career that most people enjoy. Like when you figured out, you know, why you're special and why you get paid so much. Um, and so you just keep doing it. Um, I realized I was getting itchy. And so I was trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out if there was, you know, if there was actually another way to do what I do. Um, secondly, and, and more personally, I, I started a family. I have a, I have a son now and I realized that my incredibly you know kind of intense and bombastic way of working which usually involves a lot of travel um, and a lot of conversations around the clock you know just ignoring the clock completely that wasn't going to work with a you know with having a newborn uh, in the house you know my husband is extremely understanding but um, you know even even he was like we're gonna have to figure out a different way of doing things so I you know and not for the first time I, I sat down and I tried to kind of apply some strategic consulting to my own life. Uh, and I'm, I'm a big fan of people kind of doing that. You know, there's the, the, the phrase, doctor, heal thyself. It's one of those doctor, heal thyself moments. Um, and I asked myself, what, you know, what, what do people actually come to me for? What do people actually ask me for? And I quickly realized that regardless of what I was working on 
from a project perspective, my inbox was always a steady stream of individuals, relatives, friends, previous clients, previous collaborators uh, asking for advice, asking for advice, asking for direction, asking for my opinion on something they were working on, asking for some kind of insider information about how agencies work or how clients work or, or, you know, what a specific individual that was giving them a hard time might be thinking, you know, pretty, a pretty ubiquitous presence across all my, all my inboxes and all my different communication platforms was just this kind of SOS style of, of message. So I decided to actually coach. I decided to, I just literally put a message out on Facebook one day saying, Hey, everybody, I've decided to do this. And I got half a dozen clients like on the first day. And so for the last, let's say 12 months, that's been primarily the thing that I do. And it's great because it gives me a variety of different contexts and ways to work. So I actually coach teams as well as individuals. But the the golden rule for everyone is that, that there's a tangible goal, whether that's securing investment for your startup, or winning a pitch for a project or an account, or growing a project into an account, you know, everybody has to have a very concrete objective that I can that I can coach them towards. And do you find most of the clients come pre-equipped with that objective or or do you have to help them define that it's actually a mix it's a mix of both i think um usually teams you know teams who are humble and aware enough to consider bringing in an outsider usually have a very specific thing that they want to pay you for which is for which is good individuals tend to be a little bit you know trickier if there's a job that they want or investment that they need to secure then that's you know very concrete but it's it's not always the first thing uh, that people say they want. When you think about the future of where you might go with the, the coaching, um, mm. having spent you know, the last 12 months or so doing it, are you starting to get a sense of where are the things that you particularly want to help with? Because you know, obviously, I guess there's a degree of, of, of back and forth between you and the clients on that. You know, people are coming to you with uh, needs of varying degrees of specificity. Um, yes. But then you also have presumably ambitions of your own as to what sort of industries, what sort of problems you want to, to work on, on solving. You know, when you yeah. think um, 12 months into the future, uh, are there any particular things that you hope you'll have the chance to, to work on? I think there's, there's two answers to that question. The first is that I've, I have always had a couple of filters for what I'm willing to work on, um, which hasn't always gone down well, obviously in agencies where you're supposed to take what you're given. But you know, one of the, one of the principles that I hold quite dear is, is essentialism. And, and what I mean by that specifically is does, does this brand or product or organization, does it deserve to exist in the future? And that's, that might sound quite heavy. I very much enjoy unpacking that question with every uh, mission and request that, that is put, on, put in front of me. Does it deserve to exist? Making people interrogate their objectives with that in mind has always led to interesting conversations. And if I've, you know, if I've then taken the project on and, and you know, continued with it, um, you know, I've committed fully to it because we've had that upfront conversation about, you know, about about whether or not it's essential. So that's the first answer. The second answer is I I was very lucky. I was lucky enough to um, to teach for a very you know special set of of individuals from Barcelona last year. They were studying. I'm going to forget the name of the course, but they were basically studying research for design research for innovation at the Elisava Institute in Barcelona. Um, and it's a very, you know, when I when I read the syllabus, I was jealous because you know I've I've come by most of my knowledge like the hard way just by kind of working for you know a dozen different agencies. Whereas you know as is always the way, uh, a lot of the stuff that I kind of stumbled upon and have cultivated in my approach is now baked into a syllabus it's baked into a course that that students can now go and do for like two years um you know instead of 15 years they can go away and do it in two but i was invited to i was invited to teach and i i ended up you know these are very very smart um individuals who are already in their mid-30s this was not any kind of um it wasn't any kind of tutorial on how. It was more about the real world of consulting 
because most of them, you know, have had an academic understanding of um, what strategy involved, sorry, what strategy involves on projects, but they have very little um, real life experience of um, how to how to win work, how to do work, how to extend work and deliver work to to real life clients. So we ended up having this really amazing experience where I basically just telling them the realities and, you know, not sugarcoating it in any way and not trying to be prescriptive about what to do, just being very real about the fact that, you know, innovation is is about is about confrontation. If you're trying to change things in a meaningful way, you will almost certainly get resistance from people who love things the way they are. So, you know, to go back to our theme about, you know, how to be how to be a constructive troublemaker, I, I very much enjoyed um, helping these graduates to get their heads around uh, what they were actually taking on in order to to be, you know, in innovation strategists. Well, Anika, thank you very much for taking the time to share, you know, the real breadth of your story so far. And I, I do hope you'll stay in touch uh, with us in the, the MEX community and share some more as things develop, because it sounds like to. from whichever direction you go from here, there's going to be several interesting paths to it. So it'd be great to stay in touch on that and catch up again and, and hear where you've got to with it. But um, yeah, thank you very much indeed for, for taking the time to come on the show. quite the story, and I'm very grateful to Ramona Liberoff for making the introduction. Actually, that's been a pretty consistent theme with some of my favourite episodes of this podcast. They've almost always come through introductions, either made by you, by the listeners, uh, or people who've been guests on the show themselves. So, you know, if you ever think of anyone I should have on as a guest, don't hesitate to drop me a line. I'm always interested to hear and, and make those kind of connections. You can email me. Uh, it's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com uh, or take a look at the show notes uh, in the podcast section of mobileuserexperience.com. And there are links there, obviously, to all of the things that we talk about, but also some direct clicky things that make it easy to, to get in touch with me. So before we finish up, Let's talk briefly about dinner, specifically our Mex Dining Club series. We had the last one at the end of June. Uh, we were sitting out in a, a rather lovely garden courtyard in Southwark in London until quite late and talking about all things experience design. Uh, and we're going to have a little break over the summer while everyone's away on holidays, but we have already got the date in the diary for the next one, which is coming up. That's going to be Wednesday, 5th September uh, in London again. And if you've not been along to one before, the format is really simple. There are 12 seats at the table. It's a three-course set menu, and everyone just settles their own bill directly with the restaurant on the night. And it's a mix of people who are working client-side, agency-side, designers, strategists, technologists. And the one unifying thread is they all tend to be people, much like you, I guess, who share an interest in making the future of digital a more user-centered, better-designed place. Now, they do tend to fill up quite quickly. So if you'd like to come along, drop me an email at designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com and I can send you over an invite with all of the details and keep you posted directly on ones that we've got coming up in the future. That's basically it for this edition, uh, apart from to say that if you enjoyed this theme around customer-centered innovation, if it's something that you're, you're particularly interested in, then I've also selected three other episodes from our MEX podcast archive and put links to them in the show notes so that you can dive a bit deeper into this. Um, they're my interviews with Ramona Liberoff, uh, Massimo Mercury, and Josh Shabtai, which were episodes 8 47 and 34 of the podcast. Uh, so just head on over to mobileuserexperience.com, look for the show notes for this episode, episode 50, uh, and you'll find some easy links there to click on and to get hold of those conversations. I'll be back soon with more, but for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.